and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Saturday, December 24th, 2022. <laughs> My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. I have a question for the two of you. Think, uh, long, and, think long and hard about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So here we are, and uh, you're in your New York City apartments, and the power and uh, the heat has gone out. Which, you are? No, no. This oh, is a question right, for you. This, so, okay. Yeah. It's a scenario. This uh, imagined scenario. Ah, okay. Gotcha. The power and the heat have gone out. You are there. Mm-hmm. And which... Playbills or indoor cast recordings? Do you burn to stay alive? <laughs> oh, that's very easy. Oh, is it really? Okay. Oh yeah, <laughs> but don't make me embarrass anybody. <laughs> of course not. But you know for yourself in your heart. Oh yeah, all set. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. So, Michael, how about you? Anything come to mind? Well, uh, unfortunately, in my case, in my last uh, move, I had mm. to get rid of um, a you went huge, digital. huge percentage of my playbills. Mm. Uh, so I, I, they, I could not use them as fodder for the fire. Uh, I'd have to think of, uh, I, don't, I don't have a lot. I mean, I live in a studio apartment now, so I do not have a lot that is extraneous. <laughs> okay. So uh, Michael's gone, but Peter will still be with us. <laughs> so <laughs> my issue would be that I'm on the 24th floor. So uh, yeah, I guess I'd be. Stuck. Well, heat heat rises. So yeah, no, a- but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> as far as no heat. Yeah. getting out for provisions and stuff. Mm. Uh, I see. Well, back, yeah. <laughs> uh, so DoorDash. <laughs> DoorDash. <laughs> yeah, they would love that, wouldn't they? Yeah, that well exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do they call those things that they have in the uh, east side townhouses where the dumb uh, waiters, food, the food comes up and down dumb waiters? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Any uh, dumb waiters used in um, plays and musicals that we could think of? I think of some sort of. Uh, I there's feel like one a- in um, there's one in the movie of Life with Father uh-huh. uh, right uh-huh. at the beginning. And it's so wonderful to see, you know, this thing that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I think um, there may have been one in the Ritz, maybe. Um, mm. I think. But- I feel like I saw Kevin Klein use one in a play, and, and I can't remember mm. what it was. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to... Present laughter? Possibly present laughter. Seems like the right type of setting for it. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. To, if uh, you're a listener and you can think of a dumb waiter. In uh, in a player musical, let us know. So, I'm going to start this, Michael. But I think that perhaps you can finish it off <laughs> okay. by saying that uh, Santa has come early. 
uh, for all of us because the announcement this week that merrily we roll along will be transferring to Broadway. So that's very, very exciting for everybody who could not get a ticket down at New York Theater Workshop. Mm-hmm. No, not till the filming. fall. Not yeah. till the fall, uh, which um, I had f- heard from the beginning that it could not transfer immediately because what I had heard was that Jonathan Groff had another commitment. I imagine that the other two leads may have commitments as well, but uh, so who knows if that's correct. Um, But regardless, it will be the follow. And by the way, uh, I mean, this obviously isn't the conflict because it's already completed, but Jonathan um, is about to open in his first leading role uh, in a movie. Uh, the Ang Lee film uh, "Knock at the Cabin." I think that's, <laughs> I think that's the title. "Knock at the Cabin." It's one of those M Night Shyamalan things. Groff, gets, <laughs> Groff always gets so scary, scary movies. Yeah, he's got a few of those, but <laughs> different types as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you, you, you buried the lead. Oh. Which, which one? Which lead did I bury? Jonathan Groff. Oh yeah, um, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I well yeah. Uh, well, you know, if, unless something changes, Jonathan will be joining us on the podcast on January eighth. So, if you want to hear come Groff sauce, come uh, uh, listen to it live. Get over to Patreon.com/slash Broadway Radio and sign up so that you can hear Groff live uh, when he comes on in a. Like two weeks, three weeks, something like that. I'm bad at the calendar thing. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, I have a quick recommendation. I usually don't recommend other podcasts, um, but I heard an awesome podcast yesterday that I'd never heard before called Spark and Fire. Hmm. Um, and it's uh, a co-production of some group and the BBC. Uh, I have not heard of the other group but i've definitely heard of the bbc and this was a very very good podcast it was uh i'll read you the title and subtitle for generosity creates magic frozen songwriters robert lopez and christian amberson lopez songwriters for frozen on the spark and fire podcast uh the story of writing let it go and more from frozen told by robert and Kristen. uh and it's about half an hour. It is so, so good and talks about how they met in the BMI Layman Engel workshop and about their relationship and how how they got frozen and got hired by Disney and wrote Let It Go and how they knew it was a hit because they play it for their they play new songs for their kids and sometimes their kids <laughs> get up and walk away and are uninterested. <laughs> and uh and when they played Let It Go, their daughter said, again, again, again. Mm-hmm. So this is a, <laughs> I, ha- I have a link to the Spark and Fire podcast in our show notes at broadwayradio.com. Uh, it's a really wonderful half hour. Uh, I've, I've tried a number of times to get Bobby and, uh, and Kristen on, and we've never been able to do it with the schedules. Um, but this was really wonderful. So take a listen to it. Also, a follow-up from last week when I ranted about uh, Bono at the Beacon and Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not mean to imply that Ticketmaster was responsible for the cost of the ticket. Uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, it, you know, I, yeah. I just was bringing up Ticketmaster to say that I was purchasing it, purchasing it from the direct source. I wasn't purchasing it from a scalper. And, right. Uh, well, I so got it wasn't, that, but thank you wasn't for clarifying. Ticket, yeah. Not <laughs> yeah. Ticketmaster's fault that the prices were so extraordinary. Sure, sure. All right. So first up, Peter, get over to the Hayes Theater to see Between Riverside and Crazy with uh, uh, rap singer Common and uh, most of the other off-Broadway cast at Second Stage. So, Peter, tell us, how is the uh, transfer fair? Terrific. Uh, no question about that whatsoever. And this uh, gentleman named Common is terrific in, um, in an arena that I guess he hasn't been in before, but he's really very good. Uh, and there he is dealing with his father, a New York treasure named Stephen McKinley Henderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been around for a while. He's been associated with a lot of August Wilson plays and a lot of uh, Gerga's plays too, um, the author of uh, Between Riverside and Crazy. And um, just magnificent. We feel bad for him when the curtain rises because he's sitting in a wheelchair. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, obviously something bad has happened to him. Uh, frankly, his wife used the wheelchair. She's gone now, but he finds it very comfortable. He likes sitting in a wheelchair. So, um, however, he has had his problems because he was a police officer and he was wounded and he has a big gripe with the, uh, the city and a big gripe with those people who, uh, he feels should give him a lot of money and he needs money because he's in a rent control department and the landlord wants him out. It's quite an apartment, I'll tell you that, as uh, so many of the rent <laughs> control departments are. And um, and it was really something um, to see the set, which is on a turntable and uh, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully designed by Walt Spangler. So just as you think you're only going to see one room, suddenly it turns and you see another room and it turns and you see another room. And uh, you're really very impressed uh, about these um, West Side Apartments that indeed uh, still exist and uh, people are still living there for a <laughs> fraction of what most of us are paying. Mm. So now the problem I have with the play <clears throat> is not unlike the problem I have with Top Dog Underdog, which I spoke about a few weeks ago in contrast with the piano lesson where um, uh, Boy Willie and the piano lesson is a hardworking guy and wants everything he can possibly get through legal means, while Top Dog Underdog has um, shoplifting going on, and um, I found that uh, pretty distasteful. Well, here we find out that um, that indeed our so-called hero, uh, Pops Washington, that's Mr. Uh, Henderson, <laughs> well, uh, he's trying to get money under false circumstances, and it's a very sad false circumstance. It's manipulative. Uh, He's lying. He's he's saying something uh, happened that did not happen in order to get money. So we feel bad that he um, is doing that, but we feel even worse when he starts taking advantage of somebody else, somebody, in fact, with whom he worked, somebody with whom he seemed to have a good relationship. Um, there is another factor involved um, with um, the um, intended, the fiance of uh, this person, but still we feel very bad that he gets what he wants uh, bec- from a manipulative way. So the play does take a direction that I don't much like. 
However, to watch Stephen McKinley Henderson, especially at the beginning where it is just hilarious dialogue, hilarious. Really, you will have many, many belly laughs in the first five to ten minutes of the show. <laughs> but really, um, it's a very good cast. Uh, Rosa Colon is excellent as um, a girlfriend. Um, Lisa Colon Zayas is terrific as a woman who comes in ostensibly to bring him religion um, and brings him something else entirely. Entirely, believe me. Um, Michael Rispoli, excellent as a lieutenant, and certainly Elizabeth Canavan as another as a detective, excellent as well. I also have to mention Victor Almanza as um, Oswaldo, who um, is uh, somebody who was so involved with um, Stephen McKinley's character. He calls him uh, Pop's dad um, because he feels like uh, he's a father to him, even though he really isn't. So we really get. Th- established early on that this is a good and generous guy there are several instances where he could be um asking these people for money the people in his life um but no he wants it from the state and um, i just wish that um he could have a happy ending without having to be illegal um in the way that he gets it Maybe you can remind me, Peter. I don't know if this was the Gerges play, but there's one I remember from years ago. Does it have a line where somebody says, um, uh, just talks about where can you get an affordable apartment in Manhattan? And somebody else says, oh, I don't know, Queens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is, is this yeah, the indeed. one? <laughs> yeah. And I, I have a feeling that line is very dated. I was thinking you would have to, it would have to be the yeah. Bronx now, maybe. Yeah. Really. <laughs> or, or Yonkers. Really. Yeah. Or West Virginia. <laughs> uh, remind everybody that we did speak into, we spoke to Stephen McKinley Henderson about two years ago, January 17th, 2021. I'll link to that in the show notes. That's and right. we talked a little bit about the transfer of between Riverside and crazy because it has been, uh, pending and pending and pending right before the pandemic. And then we waited all this time for it to sort itself out at second stage's schedule mm. to make it back to Broadway. And we had a great conversation with Steven. So I will link to that in the show notes, but, uh, yeah, yeah look at very clever, um, <clears throat> visual thing that happens, uh, deep in the play that, um, can tip you off as to what's going to happen. I will admit I didn't catch it. My girlfriend Linda did. And by the way, it's in the second act. What does that tell you? She was there for the second act. <laughs> <laughs> no higher praise can be had. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Between Riverside and Crazy is scheduled right now uh, through February 12th, 2023. And Michael and I will probably be seeing it, so uh, we'll come back and report to you when we do. Next up, Michael, you did a return to Almost Famous, Uh, so tell us about your return. Yes, I was glad I got to see it again, because initially when I saw it, um, one of the leads was out, Chris Wood, um, who, yeah, who plays the role of Russell Hammond. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the lead oh. or, or one of the leads of the the band, the fictional band, the semi-fictional band <laughs> in the in the show, Stillwater. Uh, and I wanted to see him and he, he was he was really great. Um the understudy was very good too. But um you might know Chris Wood from um well, he did 
uh, he was in the tour of Spring Awakening, the the first national tour, I think, with, as Melchior. Um, so that was a, a bit of a while ago. But uh, uh, and then he did Damn Yankees as Joe Hardy at both Paper Mill and the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. Um, but also, uh, you might know him. Uh, other pe- people might know him from TV: Containment, Supergirl, The Vampire Diaries, Mercy Street. Um, so he was really terrific. I'm glad I went back. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, uh, not terribly surprised, but sorry that this show is closing. I think um, they almost really ha- had a really good show. Uh, I think Tom Kitt's work on it is absolutely excellent as um, composer and lyricist. And for the most part, um, I think Cameron Crowe uh, did a good job of. Um, adapting uh, you know this property of, uh, which is his baby very much his baby uh to the musical stage uh he also is a co-lyricist by the way um i i had the same feeling i had the first time i thought the first act was thoroughly enjoyable and i really don't have no criticism of it at all but act two really just kind of seemed like it went on forever um so i think uh this is odd it's directed by jeremy heron who first of all um is british second of all uh was born in 1970 so he it's not like he was you know had any kind of adult consciousness when when all of this type of action would have been taking uh place in the in the rock world of the 70s the late 70s and third of all uh i i double checked in his credits it doesn't seem like he ever has directed a musical. Now, I, I think none of those things is absolutely required, but when you have all three together, I, I do. I wonder why he was even chosen. Uh, and he's done very good work, uh, you know, in other non-musical shows. Don't get me wrong; it just seems so random. I, I wonder what the connection was. Uh, why he of all people and maybe if it had been uh, a director who had more experience with musicals maybe the um, that issue that i mentioned would have been solved but also i i do recognize that even if it had been even if that had been solved and this was the perfect musical um i, I suppose I guess that it probably would have had a short run anyway, because it seems people uh, just don't want to see it. Uh, we've had a lot of a lot of uh, very um, in- bracing, interesting, uh, surprising things happen recently. I-, I think as far as what shows have run and what which ones have not. Uh, and I, as I've said many, many times, I'm very very glad i'm not a producer because Mm -hmm. i i would not i cannot predict what will hit and what won't but uh this has no star in it um and the movie was some time ago and uh maybe it i'm sure it has its fan base but maybe uh, apparently not enough or or uh, even if it does have a big fan base maybe some of those people don't want to pay to see a musical version of it on on broadway um so i i can't you know i my my powers of uh, analysis are limited <laughs> as to why this had such a short run but i do think there is so so much in it that's good including the score and uh much of the direction and the book and the, many of the performances um 
especially Chris Wood and Casey Likes uh, as the central character of this very young, very, very young guy uh, based on Cameron Crowe's real life experience who becomes a rock journalist uh, and also Anika Larson as his mother, a really terrific performance. But the whole cast was was fantastic. I'm I'm sorry um, that they're not going to be doing what they're doing much longer. All right. So uh, not much longer contained stops at January 8th, 2023. So Almost Famous will be at the Jacobs through there. And then I think that there is a national tour being planned, but not quite yet announced. So we'll uh, we'll see if that goes out and about around the uh, country and the world. And speaking of the Jacobs, this might be a good time to uh, say that we hear uh, that that may be the home of the Broadway transfer of Parade, uh, which is happening, uh, definitely happening. Uh, the, just the theater has not officially been announced yet. Uh, and they are apparently beginning performances in uh, March and I'm not sure when the official opening will be. Yeah, so uh, exciting to get a uh, chance to see Parade, such a hot ticket. What? What? It was the fundraiser for City Center, was it? Was is that? What? It was. Yeah, well, it, not officially part of the Encore series. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, a fundraiser and hard ticket to get, um, but very well received and. Uh, you know, uh, as if you're a longtime listener, you know, I'm a big fan of Jason Robert Brown. Can't wait to see another one of his uh, musicals back on Broadway. Yes. So, uh, Peter, you went all the way to Des Moines, didn't you? <laughs> no, no. You just just went to Brooklyn, just went to Brooklyn to, to theater for a new audience to see a play called Des Moines. Uh, so tell us about it. Well, it's by Dennis Johnson, and uh, he was a very uh, esteemed writer. Um, a, a lot of novels. He did poetry, short stories. Um, but <clears throat> towards the end of his life, he really wanted to uh, concentrate on doing plays. And <clears throat> I'm not 100% sure that I got this one. And I'm going to say that because he named it Des Moines, and indeed, that's where it takes place, I'm getting the impression that what he's saying is that um, people who live in Des Moines are just as crazy as those of us who live here. <laughs> I think that's really what he's getting at, because I'm telling you, the people in this play are uh, pretty off the wall. All right. So Dan and Marta are a couple. They've been married for a long time. He's a chauffeur. He's very um, distraught because he found out that uh, the guy he drove to the airport got into a plane, and alas, the plane crashed, and he was the last person to talk to um, him, he assumed. Uh, frankly, I would think you'd have to talk to somebody at the counter but um, and uh, somebody else. But anyway, it, it spooks him out, and um, it really upsets him. And uh, his wife, Marta, really tries to uh, soothe him. But they have other problems, too, because they have a, a granddaughter who used to be a grandson, uh, played by Hari Neff, um, who was pretty famous some years back for being uh, the first transgender model to uh, be on the cover of magazines. And, um, <clears throat> but um, it's funny. Here's another play where somebody's in a wheelchair because um, Jimmy, uh, whom as they call her, 
uh, even though uh, she establishes that she's um, had uh, the operation, um, <clears throat> is is in a wheelchair. We we don't, I don't think ever know why um, what happened, but um, or, or even if it's necessary, much in the way that I was speaking earlier about Stephen McKinley's character, uh, Henderson's character. So, um, so we have that, and there's uh, consternation about that, and there's consternation when Father Michael comes in. Now, what had happened was that Dan uh, was at a place, and he saw Father Michael um, all uh, gussied up with lipstick and rouge, and um, this was quite a surprise to him that Father Michael would um, have transvestite tendencies. And when Father Michael comes in, um, Father Michael is actually uh, confronted with this um, by by Jimmy, and uh, and he very calmly says, "Well, I guess it was going to have to get out." Uh, he doesn't seem to be very upset about it, but um, <laughs> anyway, he gets more upset as time goes on over other things. Though he does wind up um, uh, coming out in a way that we might not expect in another fashion. I don't want to give too much away. But uh, also coming into the mix is Mrs. Drinkwater, who indeed was the widow of the uh, gentleman who died in the plane crash. So um, she has her issues, too. They wind up all spending uh, the night there, um, the meaning, I should say, really, uh, Father Michael and Mrs. Drinkwater, because after all, the other three people live in this um, um <clears throat> Very nice, um, uh, not distinctive, uh, and meant not to be distinctive, uh, set by Ricardo Hernandez. Um, it's supposed to be a, a bread and butter type of, uh, set, uh, certainly livable, and many of us would, um, love to have it, but, um, but not, uh, architecturally significant in any way, uh, very perfunctory. But anyway, they wind up, um, <clears throat> spending the night and the next day as so many of us have experienced with one night stands we're a little embarrassed in the morning in a way that we weren't at night uh isn't it interesting that at night we tend to tell secrets that we might not tell in the light of day i don't know why that happens but it really is true <laughs> so uh so this happens here as well so it's a wild and crazy play and um it does seem to want to say that um, people are, are crazy in Des Moines just as they are everywhere else. I'm thinking that might be it. Just as I said a few weeks ago about um, Sarah Rule's play, that I might have had a completely different interpretation, that indeed um, this playwright too might have said, no, no, no. Uh, this is a play about people who each of them wants to be lieutenant governor of Vermont. I mean, it could very well be, but this is the best I could take from Des Moines. Uh, <clears throat> certainly... It kept my attention. I was interested in what was going to happen next. I just can't explain very well uh, why so many things were happening next. We're going to have to tell our friends, the Drinkwater Brothers, that this character has their name. That's right. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Not exactly that common. <laughs> and by the way, um, uh, the, uh, Michael Shannon, uh, uh, if there's ever another revival of Arsenic and Lace really could play the Boris Karloff role very well. Um, he does have a vague resemblance to Boris Karloff and, <laughs> uh, and holds himself in a way that um, re is reminiscent of Boris Karloff too. So um, I don't know if we're going to see Arsenic and Lace anymore. There's a lot of people involved in it. It's a big cast. And, uh, and the last revival, which was, wow, I, was it, 86 i don't know somewhere around there with gene stapleton from all in the family fame or for those of us who care 
Juno, damn Yankees and bells are ringing. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, didn't do that well. And um, so I don't know. But it, believe me, if anybody's interested in doing Arsenal Lace, uh, that's your Jonathan. Well, Craig Kwasnicki, who directed the production of Guys and Dolls that I was in on Staten Island, is directing Arsenic and Olace next No season. kidding. So I don't know if oh, they're going to get Michael Shannon to come to Staten Island. but <laughs> No, I, I understand that. But the question, um, are you going to audition, Michael? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to come out and see you again. Do you know that that uh, is a property that I have never seen in any form, not even really? the movie? So Just- um, the movie's not very good. Um, Frank Capra loved to fool around with uh, Broadway properties. Oh, yeah. I think I think he yeah. ruined uh, each one he touched. But yeah. but uh, the play is quite wonderful. Um, try to find – it's probably on YouTube. Back in 62, 63, Mildred Natwick and, um, was mm. one of the sisters and, uh, Tom Bosley was in it and Tony Randall was, uh, the lead. He was ter- he's perfect for the part, um, in that era. So, uh, a very good Hallmark Hall of Fame, I think it was. Try to find it on YouTube. I, this is, by the way, advice for everybody, not just Michael. Um, it's great fun. Um, it's abridged and the only part they cut out has to do with being a drama critic. Um, <laughs> to re- I mean, there's, they do a Established, he's a theater critic. There's no question about it. But um, there's a lot that they omit that deals with that in this Hallmark uh, Hall of Fame thing. But still, it's pretty much the play as is, and it's really quite delightful. And thank you for mentioning YouTube. YouTube, yes. I found two (laughs) gems this week, both the 1951 Hollywood film version and the 1966 television version of Death of a Salesman. Uh, are available complete on YouTube. The 51 movie is with Frederick March, and the 66 uh, TV is with <laughs> Lee J. Cobb. You know, uh, so, this is amazing because that yeah. movie, that 51 movie, never shows up. No. Never. No. Never. I don't know what's happened because, indeed, it was acclaimed at the time. It got Oscar nominations. Um, in uh, the late 90s, I was asked to go up to Valdez, Alaska, um, because Arthur Miller was going to uh, be there, and they were having a big festival of Arthur Miller um, plays, and um, I, w- I was there to interview him um, in front of an audience. And um, so they had all these movies. But they did not have Death of a Salesman. They showed the uh, Dustin Hoffman TV version. And I really thought if we were going to see it, we were going to see it there. But I don't know what it is. But God bless you two for getting it up. because That's the only place you're going to see it, apparently. I'm guessing there might be some weird rights issue. It because, must be. Because it's the, the copy on YouTube is really not great quality. It, I, 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 I have to do the research. I wouldn't be surprised if it fell into public domain for some reason that it has all the earmarks of that and maybe, uh, you know, but that wouldn't have happened right away anyway. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I had always heard of the, the movie existing, but never, uh, saw it, uh, and until this turned up. So that's a really, really great find. And the mm-hmm. TV production, um, you know, just for the fact of having Lee J. Cobb, but also the rest of the cast is is excellent. Mildred Dunnick, who's also in, in the movie as Linda. And then um, uh, the TV version is James Farentino as Happy. And um, uh, 
Oh, now I forgot who who Biff is. Oh, George Siegel. George Siegel. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah. So these are two really, you know, really excellent Death of a Salesman that you might want to see. All right. So I will have those in the show notes as well, so you can check those out uh, in case you have uh, some extra time over the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, avoiding the cold weather that has enveloped most of the United States. Yeah. So uh, let's see what do we have here next. Uh, after Des Moines, uh, oh, Michael got to Dizzy's Jazz Club over in Lincoln Center to see the great Marilyn May. So how's Marilyn these days? All 94, is she? <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Um, she's great. She she Well, this was before the big freeze started. This was on Sunday mm-hmm. the 18th, but she really warmed up the room. And this was, um, I was really excited about seeing uh, this particular show because it was my first time at Dizzy's, uh, which is a fabulous jazz club uh, at... Uh, the well what used to be called the time warner center and apparently now is the deutsche bank center but it's jazz at lincoln center it's part of that complex that also includes the rose room that big beautiful theater and the appell room um which is a, a, a another cabaret type space larger than dizzy's but uh but still pretty intimate um dizzy's is great it uh like um the appell room it does have a a view of central park uh in with these huge windows in back of the performer so it's the the greatest backdrop backdrop you could ever wish for and um unlike many other clubs Dizzy's is very spacious. You will not feel claustrophobic. Uh, there's lots of room between the tables and uh, just really beautifully appointed. And the staff is great. And it's not especially expensive. It's on a par uh, with the other major rooms, maybe even a little less expensive than than some of them. Uh, I paid for this ticket because I don't have a an inn at Dizzy's as far as uh, press tickets, and I was very happy uh, to pay uh, to see the final performance of Marilyn's run there um, on Sunday the 18th. And she was terrific as always. She uh, Opened with a little a little bit of a holiday medley that included songs like Jingle Bells, and then after that she just did her you know her greatest hits <laughs> and favorites. Um, so uh, it was a wonderful wonderful night. And then um, on uh, next weekend I'll be seeing her again uh, because she's going to be at Birdland uh, around New Year's Eve and including on New Year's Eve. Uh, but I will be seeing the final performance of that run on Sunday, on uh, excuse me, on uh, January 1st, which is, yeah, Sunday uh, at 9.30. So, um, yeah, she's amazing. And uh, she has finally started talking about her upcoming appearance at Carnegie Hall with the New York Pops. Um, she told me that for a while she didn't want to talk about it because she's superstitious. But she, <laughs> I guess, has gotten over that. And she she talked about that. And she's very excited about singing an entire program with them, uh, with that huge orchestra in the spring. And it will be her solo. Uh, she has sung it before at Carnegie Hall as a guest, uh, you know, in in 
concerts that featured lots of other performers. But this will her be her uh, debut as a uh, where she's the headliner, the sole headliner of that concert. So that is a really, really special thing. It sounds like uh, that you might want to put on your radar. All right. So that is Marilyn May, uh, Marilyn May. Uh, and as Michael said, she's going to be coming to Birdland. I have a link to the Birdland run in the show notes. Um, Michael, when you were uh, seeing her at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center, you didn't uh, stop by per se. Did you get some get a uh-huh. bite to eat? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, not quite my price range. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. when they when people say to me, uh Oh, you know, you get all these free tickets to Broadway. And I was like, the the holy grail is to become the New York Times food critic. <laughs> the New York Times food critic gets to eat wherever they want for free. Yes. You know, for, yeah. forget, I'll buy my own theater tickets. Hell, I buy my own theater tickets now. I'll <laughs> I want to be the New York Times food critic. <laughs> That's the best way to go. Yes. All right. So uh, let's see. Uh, we started to talk a little bit about parade transferring to Broadway, um, but I believe Peter, you didn't see the concert, but Michael, you did. Is that true? Oh yes, I didn't. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So Michael, tell us, you know, uh, about the parade concert versus what it uh, could be when it comes to Broadway. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Do they need to change anything? Just copy and paste, or or what do you think? Well, it's interesting you ask that because the one thing that almost everyone criticized uh, in the city center production was the uh, that the, they decided to have the entire um, stage basically at at city center was built up with platforms uh, on which the cast performed for, for the most part. Uh, but then there was another platform in the center of, of that really large one. And the, the center platform was very high, uh, much smaller, but very high. Uh, and in fact, um, they used uh, the front of it, uh, the, the the side of it that faced the audience uh, as a place to project titles uh, throughout the show, which really did help um, as far as making it clear where the various scenes were taking place. And, the, and there were other sorts of pro- projections as well there. Um, so everyone seemed to agree that uh, that platform was too high. Uh, and also uh, one reason why that was an issue is that it obscured um, for everyone sitting in the orchestra at City Center, it had obscured uh, their view of Jason Robert Brown conducting the orchestra in back of both of those platforms. So um, actually, uh, our friend William Michaels was in the cast at City Center and will be continuing. And I and I spoke with him um, recently, and he was the one who told me that the show is moving. But I, I see that it has also been confirmed elsewhere. And um, I think... Uh, well, we discussed that a little bit, and he doesn't know for sure, but I, I, I expect that uh, that issue is going to be addressed because, like I said, everyone uh, commented on it. And uh, uh, who knows if um, it be interesting to see if um, Jason Robert Brown is engaged to conduct um, this this production, which is going to be a limited run, I believe, uh, will be announced as a limited run. Uh 
uh, that would certainly be a, a, a coup. Uh, or maybe he'll do, you know, maybe he'll do opening night, but then mm-hmm. we'll continue. Well, we'll see. But either way, it would be nice to see the orchestra uh, and the conductor, if uh, assuming they're going to uh, keep it, a, you know, a concert mm-hmm. production in that mm-hmm. in that sense. And I expect that they will because uh, of, they're not going to want to add the costs of of traditional sets uh to the show and it was so effective the way as i said to uh to william michaels it really was one of the best things i've seen in a long time and he said something like yeah you know you never know when you get involved with these things but this was definitely one of those where you think boy this is really 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 good um, I'm, I'm so happy uh, because I also mentioned to him that I did see the original production and I, it's hard to put my finger on it, but I just don't think it completely worked. Whereas this one absolutely, absolutely worked 100%. I find nothing to criticize about it, the show or the production, other than that, that thing I just mentioned with the platforms. And I'm sure that's going to be fixed. So hopefully they will uh, have a successful transfer. Jason uh, uh, was so, so heavily involved in the City Center production. I can't imagine that he's not going to be very involved in this as well. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see uh, what happens there. What was the um, the the musical down at the public uh, with the suffragettes? Suffs. 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 So the uh, picture, the press photo from Parade looks like uh, the same set as Suffs down at the public. Uh-huh. Uh, it's so interesting uh, with all the bunting and the uh, the platforms and the thing up center, the way that Michael had just talked about. So uh, Philip Baroff over um, at, at the Broadway Journal wrote about the... Uh, uh, about the financing behind it, they uh, talked about a six point five million dollars to finance this uh, this transfer, uh, and he says it's going to open in mid March. So we'll have to see if that's just preview in mid March and open in April, or if what those things will actually have to say. But even at a, a limited run, they have to run for twenty five weeks to break even. So that's mm-hmm. a six sure. month. Sure. Um, so uh, we'll have to see how this all shakes out. But again, I'm very excited to see another Jason Robert Brown play musical come back to Broadway. Yes. We also have heard that A Man of No Importance is going to uh, transfer mm-hmm. to Broadway and come into the cir- circle in the square. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I'm delighted. Uh, I think it's a very good musical, and uh, I think it deserves um, more air than it's gotten uh, over these years. So, um, is Jim Parsons staying with it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, don't I'd think imagine, it would. I don't, I don't think it would be happening it tra- if, yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. If it weren't for Jim Parsons, I don't think it could transfer. I mean, that's a, a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, Jim seems to have a lot of fans that will buy ticket Broadway tickets. He's been on Broadway a number of times and sure. God carried, carried, carried the ticket sales, you know, along the lines of uh, Hugh Jackman carrying ticket sales for the larger mm-hmm. productions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I'm well, I'm delighted too. And I, uh, I would be leery of its 
chances on Broadway just because of the type of show it is, but he is a major draw. And I'm sure again, that it will be announced as a limited run. Uh, so, and I also think uh, circle in the square will be a great place for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask kind the- of similar uh, setup to um, CSC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask if yeah. CSC played on three sides or not. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Good. Good. So it's a very similar type of mm-hmm. yep. venue uh, for that. And that works out really well for them. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, Robert W. Schneider's uh, production company, J2 Productions, uh, announced their new season. Michael, why don't you give us a rundown of that? Yeah, really, really interesting. Woman of the Year. Uh, the Goodbye Girl, directed by David Zippel, I'm told. And Sugar. Yes, they have announced, uh, somehow got the rights uh, to do Sugar, the original musical adaptation of Some Like It Hot, which uh, Sugar itself was later retitled Some Like It Hot uh, for, uh, at least for uh, the touring production that I saw that. In London, too. Oh, 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 that's right. London. Yes. And there's yeah. a cast album of that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the touring production that I saw with Tony Curtis, which uh, Peter also mentioned recently. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. I, I, I imagine um, that this tells us that in negotiating uh, for the rights to create a new musical of Some Like It Hot, that um, Mark Shademan and Scott Whitman and, and, and all those people did not uh um were not able to include a uh uh you know a clause which would prevent productions of sugar it's kind of a similar situation to what happened with to kill a mockingbird <laughs> uh but look what happened with that 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 turned into a tremendous mess i i don't know if you all have been following that um that and uh, you know to, in a nutshell uh, scott rudin had prevented productions of the uh, previous adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, but then uh, there was a tr- tremendous amount of conflict over that, and now recently the uh, the rights holders of the original uh, had sued um, Scott Rudin, and that and that's been in the news again recently. So, uh, so um, I don't know if it could be done, but if I were running a regional theater, um, I would. Um, Put both of them in repertory because um, Aaron Sorkin's uh, play is really a sequel more than uh, an adaptation. There are, of course, um, overlapping scenes, but nevertheless, um, seeing those two side by side, I think, would be uh, pretty fascinating. Just as um, I was very proud of Trinity Rep in Providence uh, back in the 70s when they did um, another part of the forest as well as the Little Foxes. Hmm. Uh, And I'm sorry I didn't get to see them. It was a time in my life when I couldn't get there. But um, but the idea of doing that, I think, would be uh, pretty fascinating uh, side by side. And there's enough interest in To Kill a Mockingbird that I think that at least for a reason week run that uh, they'd be able to fill seats if not with, with um, adults certainly with um, kids who read that book in school which uh, s- some kids still are allowed to do granted <laughs> some are not but that's another story entirely right let me catch up on a few things here i missed the our chat room uh, tony janicki brought up that a few years ago uh, with regard to the 51 film of death of a salesman he had a 
conversation with a staff member of Leonard Maltin about the 51 film A Death of Salesman. The Arthur Miller estate hates the film and most likely prevented it from being shown in the United States. However, it's available in Canada. So that might be why we don't hmm. see it. I wonder why. I, I haven't gotten a chance to watch the whole thing. I wonder if it's severe cuts that he hated or if it was one of the performances or two of the performances. Or That's so interesting. Uh, some may have uh, thought, well, based on what I said earlier, well, listen, if you're wondering what happened to that 1951 film and you were in Alaska to interview Arthur Miller, why didn't you ask that question, dummy? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, because as it turned out, we didn't do the um, sequence at all. Um, frankly, I do believe that he was very interested in getting a trip to Alaska and didn't want to do anything else. So, uh, So it never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Tony Janicki also throws in just now that minor cuts were the reason that Miller gave uh, for the 51 mm. death of a salesman uh, He also, uh, Tony also says that Sugar was done at Drury Lane in Oak Brook in 2010 so <clears throat> maybe Robert W. Schneider's doing that one uh, so we'll, oh, uh, I, I wonder if it was done under the title Sugar at the Drury Lane and- at the Drury Lane Wow. By the way, um, I I know Rob Schneider well, and this was negotiated uh, long before um, any firm dates were happening Mm. with with Some Like It Hot. Um, They simply went to, uh, I I might have even been willing to still Tams Whitmark, but anyway, um, certainly Concord um, said, okay, you can do it. So, uh, but the thing was, Many of us thought, gee, you know, Sugar is not um, the greatest musical in the history of mankind, and um, it won't be a situation where some like their heart will wipe the floor with it. Um, now we're not so sure, um, and um, there are certain, certainly songs in Sugar that are terrific. Mm. And um, I think may play very well. So this may be a situation where Sugar gets more appreciate, appreciation than it did. God help us, almost 50 one years <laughs> ago. I remember I started on a February weekend in 72 in Toronto. So almost 51 years ago. Good Lord. Ah, February in Toronto. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and stranded there because of snow and couldn't fly. I had to take a 16-hour bus trip back to Boston. Shocking. Um, Who could have seen that coming? And the only book I had with me was Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, which you <laughs> really a little too heavy when you're in a bad mood on a 16-hour bus ride. So. Uh, Tony Janicki also uh, reports that uh, Drury Lane did use the title Sugar. Hmm. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Rob Johnson says that Jason Robert Brown did conduct some of the performances of last five years or last percentage years at the second stage. So you can... Uh, not rule out that he will be involved heavily uh, there yeah. at the uh, in the parade thing. Also, if uh, if the uh, some like it hot uh, legal team flexes it muscle flexes their muscle and scares Rob Schneider into uh, not doing Sugar, uh, he could replace Sugar with this other title uh, that I f- that I found uh, a woman of no importance by Oscar Wilde. That's right. So yes. That could run at the same time <laughs> as a, a man of no importance and a woman of no importance can run there at the same time to uh, to get some uh, some hot uh, 
PR there. I, I, I wonder if uh, there's been a musical version of that play. There isn't one that I know of, but I'm sure there's some obscure British musical that, um, at least in the provinces, uh, tried to musicalize that play. Well, they, so. you know, they they have, you know, 10, 12 weeks. They can write all the music right now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. One thing that I would imagine that Shaman and Whitman et al. did negotiate was that Sugar uh, can never again be performed under the title Some Like It Hot. Because ah, sure. if they didn't negotiate that, that's going to get very, very, very confusing in the future. Sure. sure. Yeah. Mm. Of course, well, um, the wild if it party. was If it was produced under... Some like it hot originally, uh, then they would have had to license the name probably. But well, it wasn't originally; it, it was rever- it reverted to that. Yeah, uh, but it was a, it was, it was a prior it was a work prior to their work, so it yes. doesn't matter. The the certainly the title "Some Like It Hot" was the second title of Sugar, and it was indeed used long before they started work on this show. Right. Long yeah. Before. Right, but I, what I'm saying is that I would imagine. Yeah, that so they, would I, Michael. I yeah, agree. Yeah, mm. I agree. Yeah, I just don't don't know how that's enforceable. But mm. <laughs> okay, who knows, who knows? you know, it, it it's it's all about who has the most expensive lawyer. Yeah, you know, the truth. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, let's see. Tony Janicki, Katrina Lank played Sugarcane in a '99 production of Munster. In under the title, Some Like It Hot, but it was the Stein Merrill musical. The show mm. got rave reviews from the Chicago Tribune sometimes. Oh, my, my. Mm. Lank told me that uh, that the show gave her career a significant boost. I think that that's quite the flex Lank told me there, Anthony. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of history behind that title. Lots Apparently. and lots of history. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that uh, wraps it up for today. Before we get on to the uh, trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as some of the uh, links to some of the things we talked about today. Also, um, I guess we, we, we plan to talk about the collaboration this week, but we didn't because mm. they canceled me because of COVID yeah. in the cast. Uh, and so I guess after we get back uh, to performances in uh, the collaboration, we will talk about that. And this is our final episode of the year but we will be back on january 1st uh to talk about our 2020 roundup so peter do you have an answer for last week's trivia he wrote the score for one enormous hit in london and a lesser but still solid hit on broadway before that well-known musical though he wrote the score for a review that london saw but new york didn't on the london cast album you'll hear the title song that actually included the surname of the director who commissioned the show. Who's he? What's the show? Who's the director? And what's the lyric that includes her name? That was a clue. Her. (laughs) This turned out to be such an interesting thing because I found out that uh, what I inferred isn't quite what I um, 
isn't quite the reality. Okay, so <laughs> we're talking about the 1960 London hit Things, not Things, but Things Ain't What They Used To Be, <laughs> uh, which was written by Lionel Bart, who would later ha- in 1960 have a bigger hit with Oliver. Um, <clears throat> but the title song, which bears a great resemblance to uh, the Hoagie Carmichael Frank Lesser song, Heart and Soul, um, has the lyric, Bigfoot's now a little hood. Gamblers now do Littlewood. Now, I assume this referred to Joan Littlewood, who was a big deal off the beaten path London director, who has often been called the mother of uh, modern theater. And her theater workshop commissioned things with Frank Norman on book and Lionel Bart on um, with the score. So Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place, followed by Jack Leshner, who got the previous week's question, which escaped my attention. However, the third and final person to answer, Jeff Hickman, said, no, that does not refer to Joan Littlewood. Not at all. There was a company called Littlewood that used to um, broker uh, pool, um, British football pool um, bets. <laughs> and so that's why gamblers now do Littlewood. It was considered to be a little déclassé for gamblers to go to this um, <clears throat> company and place their bets as opposed to doing it in the way they had been doing it before. It seems like it was some sort of franchisee type operation. Um, it's no longer in existence, I found out. It, it um, uh, ceased to exist in 2005. But for a while, it was uh, considered something that people were um, happy to have. So uh, so that was a big surprise to me. I had always assumed that, uh, after all, Littlewood uh, would refer to the director, but no. Okay, fine. <clears throat> this week's question. The name of the first song in an Alan J. Lerner flop is the last line <laughs> of the most celebrated song in a Stephen Sondheim flop. What is the title the line, and the two musicals. Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? We have two Christmas songs from Promises, Promises. Uh, Music by Burt Bacharach, Hmm. lyrics by Hal David. Uh, The opener is Turkey Lurkey Time. Uh, from the original London cast album, by the way, uh, just as a, you know, something different. And I guess a lot of people, you know, when they think of that song, maybe associated more with Thanksgiving uh, because of the title. But no, it's definitely uh, about Christmas. And it's sung at a Christmas party, an office Christmas party in the show. And the lyrics uh, go, um, a snowy, blowy Christmas, a mistletoey Christmas. Um, so that is a really fun number that got a new lease on life in the movie Camp. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, but also you can find clips of I think at least two performances uh from the original company uh including Donna McKechnie on YouTube so look that up uh if you if you haven't seen it it was a, a really amazing Michael Bennett number uh in that show which I'm very glad to have seen the original production of uh and then our closer is uh the other Christmas song from Promises, Promises, which is called Christmas Day, which is a really beautiful uh, song, lovely melody, and very, very 
sweet, heartfelt lyrics. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Hal David, but I think he did a wonderful job with that one. And it comes at a very um, emotional moment in the show. Uh, and doesn't that? I don't think it's had a big life outside. No, of it really the show. hasn't. You know, I mean, no. it's just so surprising. Jerry Herman told me he never thought anything would happen with "We Need a Little Christmas" as a Christmas song. <laughs> he was writing for the moment, you know, and it turned out to be um, very, very popular. While indeed, um, as you say, this Backrack David song, you would think that they it would become a major hit given the fact that they wrote it and they had so much uh, hour to get their songs heard here, there and everywhere. So, so you just never know with that Turkey lurkey time um, in London, it's really great. There's a little more dance music in it. Boy, dance music is so (laughs) intoxicating that. um, So nice choice, Michael. Good for you. Well, I think maybe one reason Christmas day isn't as popular (laughs) is it's a little more difficult to sing. uh, Certainly than. uh, uh, we need a little Christmas, uh, but you know, for, for professional singers, obviously it's fine. And the version that I chose, I don't think there are many recordings, as I just intimated, but uh, is Jack Jones, who um, has two different Christmas albums. <laughs> I recently discovered, uh, and this is from the latter one. Um, I, I I think maybe it's a little more croony and loungy than I would have liked, uh, because he, he he did start to sing that way in the in the 70s and beyond but uh he still had one of the most beautiful voices ever heard in pop music so uh, i i hope you will enjoy his lovely rendition of christmas day all right so on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway happy new year You don't have to save up all your love to give once a year. Learn to give, try to live each day like Christmas Day.
each day.